Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm Mike Stacks. In this special edition of the show, we're breaking away from our normal bi-monthly format to bring you part two of my conversation with Greg Stackhouse Prevost. In this episode, Greg shares more of his memories of the Chesterfield Kings, his reasons for breaking up the band, and how he eventually started over as a solo artist. We talked about a lot of other things besides and had a lot of laughs along the way. After you listen, please consider helping us to continue to bring you great content such as this by becoming a Patreon. As a Patreon, for a small monthly donation, you'll receive additional bonus material, including exclusive audio, photos, and other unique content, as well as ad-free episodes. Just search Patreon Ugly Things. Thank you. Now, please enjoy part two of my conversation with Greg Stackhouse Prevost. So, I mean, I don't want to go into the whole history and all the different lineup changes right. and everything, but let's talk about, you know, you had some collaborations. I think this was one of the things you obviously wanted to do was to actually collaborate with some of your musical heroes. So, you know, I'm sure you got some great stories about that. I know you do because you told me some of them. I mean, uh, tell me about when you guys uh, uh, teamed up with Johnny Thunders, for example. Um, well, <laughs> that was kind of, um, it was kind of funny because we were on the same management and his management's going, well, Johnny's trying to clean up and all this shit, you know, really? Yeah. Right. You know, he's trying to get off of heroin and, um, you guys don't do drugs and all this stuff. And we're going, no, we don't, you know, all this, whatever. Some of us didn't, or most of us didn't. And so they're going, so we're going to do an album together and we'll send them up to Rochester and all this stuff. And we're going, okay. And I, I thought it was a good idea because I, I wanted to do it. I knew it was going to be horrible, but I wanted, <laughs> I knew it was going to be stupid. You figured the guy's just, you know, I'd met him before and he's just a, a fuck up. And I figured, well, let's just do it because it might be a good thing to do. I just wanted to do it, you know. And the other guys said, okay. And then Rocco was the band in the band at the time. He was a guitarist and he was like, fuck that stuff, man. You know, he was like, he was like a hillbilly and he didn't want to deal with it. But we just said, okay, Rocco, just calm down. You know, Rocco was a character, you know, he's a fucking moron, but he was a good, great guy and a good guitar player. <laughs> but he was a hick. So, anyways, um, Johnny, yeah, they're going, oh, we're going to send them up there. So we bring them up here and we we hook them up in the studio, GFI Studios. My friend Tony Gross, he owns it. And um, he was engineering it with this other guy, Jeff. Anyways, uh, so we get them up here and um, we have to get him a show, right? Because he needs money for probably for drugs. And so we bring him up here and we we get him this show in this place last minute. And then he's like, oh, yeah. He's like, he's a mess. I see him. I go, oh, he's supposed to stay at my house. And then I got to look at him. I go, fuck this, man. Because me and Carol just got married. And so he's smoking cigarettes and they're falling out of his mouth and landing on the floor lit. And I said, this guy's going to burn the house down. So we can't have him in our house. So we got him into some place around here. One of those quality inns or some shithole. I don't know. One of them places. And he had some hanger on girl babysitter, whatever the fuck she was. I don't know what she was. And she's like, oh, Johnny, this and Johnny, you know, all this kind of crap. And he brought a sax player and this, this other guy, Stevie played guitar with him and uh anyways it was a fiasco and we brought him up here and we we're practicing in the church you know we got to rehearse in the church where we practice and choir practices going on upstairs and he's like, oh, what's that noise is it it's a fucking choir are we in a church and i'm going oh yeah he goes oh and he's like and then he was like strung out 
you know, he was like really, we thought he was not taking drugs, you know? So, so he's like whining and, uh, and moaning. And I never saw a guy, OD, you know, get on this phase. You know, I mean, I knew guys were on crap, but they usually were on it. So they didn't see him going off it. <laughs> so anyways, to keep a long story short. One of the guys had it, we had to get him heroin, you know, because we couldn't get him to do anything. And so he didn't want to practice and he couldn't rehearse and blah, 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 and all this stupid shit. And then we got him the stuff. And then all of a sudden he's, he's a normal guy, you know, he's like really nice guy. And, uh, I liked him and stuff and he was a real nice person and all this, but then we get in the studio and that was another fiasco because he kept, he couldn't, I don't know, he couldn't focus, you know, I mean, I'm going, how do these fucking guys make records back then? You know, him and Didi Ramon, I'm, how do these guys do records? Cause it took them all these hours to do half a song, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and it was just, it was, it was this ongoing battle. And then like, then he didn't want the drummer, like Brett was this great guy, Brett Reynolds, the drummer in the band at the time. I love this guy. And, um, he's playing drums, but then he's supposed to, you know, the drummer and the bass player is supposed to start the songs. And he goes, no, I'm starting a song. I'm starting a song. I don't know. It goes like this. And so then he starts playing this rhythm and it's off and on and it speeds up and it's slow because he's, you know, he's on heroin. So he's playing this fucked up rhythm. And so then, then Brett goes, uh, I can't follow him. So then he watched him breathing and that's how he, he played along with his breathing, you know, the, you know, so then he, then we got the song going and then we finished that song. It became, um, critics choice. And then he had like three or four other ones that were like, he'd start playing it and he'd stop and and then he'd start playing and then he'd stop. And then, then he got in some kind of a row with some, I think something happened. Somebody asked him a question. He goes, I don't know record anymore. I'm not doing this anymore today. And then he left and he's supposed to come back and he went to New Orleans and he killed himself on a speedball or some shit. That was the story with Johnny Thunders. <laughs> well, but he yeah. So not all the not all the collaborations were you know great, inspiring experiences. Obviously, although I have to say it was worth it because I forgot to tell you the ice storm was going on too. That was the funny part. I don't know if you remember. You probably don't remember, but if you're in Rochester, it was like a disaster. It was like uh, we had this ice storm. We got like inches of snow, ice on the everything. All the power was off for weeks. And so he came up. I don't know how we managed to do this, like days after the ice storm. And he wanted ice cream. And he goes, I got to have some ice cream. Oh. And he burned a hole in my friend, my friend Mary Ellen Gardner, she, <laughs> who took a lot of the pictures. She was in the car sitting next to him. He burned a hole in her pants with a cigarette. And I still laugh about that. So we get in the store and uh, I was right near his hotel and um, it was one of them 7-Elevens and he's like, I got to have some ice cream. This kid goes, oh, sir, we don't have any ice cream today. And it's the ice storm. He goes, ice storm? What the fuck is that? I want some ice cream. And and so he couldn't find ice cream. So he's eating ho-hos before he paid for me. He's eating cupcakes and, you know, because I guess junkies eat sugar and stuff, right? I'm not sure about that, but I think that's true, right? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. So he's eating all his sugar. He's because he. He he was OD. He was kind of like like needing a fix. I think that he was just starting to drift off whatever he was on. And he needed some sugar or something to keep his level going or whatever the fuck it was. And I thought it was kind of weird and funny, but wow. you know, the national disaster didn't matter to Johnny. You know, 
<laughs> yeah, just needed his ice cream. I gotta have some ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, obviously not all the collaborations were quite that bad. Uh, mm. I mean, you know, what was a good one? You know, I mean, maybe uh, you know when you you work with Yorma from uh, Jefferson Airplane. I oh, mean, I love Yorma. I, I imagine that was a lot different. How did that happen? And what did you end up doing? Um, well, the, the original thing we did it never got released, which is too bad because it was so good. He was in the house of guitars. He's doing a clinic. And it was great because he's doing this guitar thing. And I, I got him to play, um, started doing some riffs from somebody to love for me and stuff. And uh, it was great. He's a great guy. I love this guy. And um, he's still one of my heroes. And I love the article, by the way, that Dave did in the, <laughs> the New Ugly Things. Oh, yeah. It's a great one. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love that. Yeah. And um, so anyways, yeah, we'd cross paths with Yorma a few times. You know, we he's playing with Hot Tuna or something. And he's a really nice guy, really down to earth, really great, great guy. So anyways, we were, he was in the store and uh, it, this was like the interim band that did the surf album. Right. But um, it was like a bunch of guys that were in that band. And uh, so we did um, the watch bands um, Don't Need Your Lovin', which Yorma played lead on. And we did it in the studio live and it was he was phenomenal. And we did it was Armin's studio. It was right downstairs in the building. So it wasn't like we had to take him anywhere. And he goes, yeah, let's do this. And then he went and he's playing all his fucking great stuff it just blew me away i'm like oh shit i'm sitting right in front of me you know yorma's playing these notes and it's like wow this is you know just blew me away and anyways sadly that tape i don't know where the hell it went but um then those guys left the band all this shit so then we had to do it again and we did it with um that song mystery trip and uh i think death is the only real thing that's on the is that on mine i don't know what album it's on mind bending sounds i think yeah the mind bending sounds yeah 2003 We couldn't do it live in the studio, so we had to send him the songs, and he overtracked it. But like, I'm glad we actually got to do the other song with him. It, it was phenomenal actually working with him. But then this was more like we were using shitty A dads. I don't know if you know what those are. I don't get into it because nobody gives a shit about that stuff. It's outdated. But he had an ADAP machine, and we had a bunch of these crappy things. And, and so we sent him the tapes, and he filled in and played these leads. It just kind of blew me away and made those two songs really what they were. Yeah, I mean, it's so obviously his sound, you know, his playing. No, no one else sounds like that. Oh, I know. He just, uh, I, he told me that, um, I, I said, how did you develop this? This I, I know I'm, I'm getting off the subject, but like when he was in the store that, doing that clinic, I go, how did you come up with this this sound that you came up with on Somebody Love? And he said that, he said he's playing a lot of notes and Jerry Garcia told him, don't play so many notes, play less notes and do what you're doing. And then he said he stopped dropped a bunch of notes and started playing like that. And then he ended up sounding like that. And it's like, wow. wow. That's why I love Jerry Garcia. People go, oh, I hate the Grateful Dead. It's like, well, I fucking like him. I don't care. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just want to cut in for a minute here. This is the show producer, James Archer, by the way. Um, I'm sorry if I'm breaking the third wall. I, I've recently learned to like them, actually, within the last few years, in fact. Yeah, me too. But I was, I was very resistant because uh, being from San Francisco in the punk rock era, we just, you know, the hippies and the punks sort of didn't like each other. Well, not not completely. Yeah. There were some crossovers for sure in the early days of the, the punk thing. But I figured it out later that we all had a lot in common, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You were supposed to hate the hippies, though, but yeah. 
<laughs> well, I think that the punk thing, it did. I mean, I cut all my hair off, believe it or not. I mean, we all did. I mean, I don't know. I was like a hippie. And then, and then the whole thing, I don't know. It was just kind of a fun time. I don't know. Now the punks are like the old hippies. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I know. It's just too bad. <laughs> Times, <laughs> yeah. they are changing, right? You know? Yeah, everyone's also righteous and, you know, and, and got this attitude when they first come out and then they all become just kind of tired and lame and it's just so predictable, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's got to do more with age than anything else, you know? Yeah, you know, the definitely. The got old and lame and then the punks got old and lame, but, you know, I mean, I knew it was going to happen. I could see after the first two years of punk that it was already starting to get a bit stale and it was all going to end badly, you know? <laughs> the original punk, Mike, the 70s? Yeah, the 70s. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, mm -hmm. like you know, I bought, you know, I was 15 in 77, you know, so I bought all the first albums when they were all great, you know, and then then the second albums came out in 78. It was like, none of them were as good, you know, yeah. it was already, they were already starting to get lame, you know, and at that point I started going back to buying all 60s records again, you know. It was a fun time. I mean, I loved that period. It was just, I don't know, I love the Sex Pistols still. I don't care if people think. Oh, you like them? I go, yeah, I liked them when they came out. And I think, I still think that first album stands up, you know? I mean, it's a good album. Yeah. Well, no, that, well, the thing about the Pistols was that they broke up after that one, making one really, really great album, you know? So they didn't. Exactly. Yep. I mean, you know, they didn't, they didn't get on to be lame. You know, they fulfilled, you know, what they set out to do and then sort of fell apart in a spectacular fashion, you know, really quickly. Yeah. It saved them, really. Yeah, you know, where they didn't, you know, whereas you got like Billy Idol or someone like that, oh, it just becomes yeah. embarrassing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but how do we get talking about Billy Idol? That's my fault. <laughs> how is it working with, uh, you work with Dee Dee Ramon. How is working with Dee Dee? I mean, I'm sure that must have been a better experience than working with Johnny Thunders. No, it was worse. Was I don't it? Hey, I, I, <laughs> I don't want to keep talking about, I mean, I want to go on and on because I ramble on. So just tell me to shut up if I go too far. Yeah. But, um, I don't know. He was a nice guy. I really liked Dee a lot. He was a nice, really good guy. And, um, I remember we, I don't know how we, we were playing somewhere in New York and apparently somebody, one of my friends came up and said, I think it was somebody from Venus records. And they said, Oh yeah, Dee Ramon loves you guys. And I'm going, Dee Ramon, the Ramones, you're shitting me. Really? And, um, I don't know what year this was. It was 86 maybe. And, yeah, it was 86. And um, I don't know what happened, but we ended up doing a show with him somewhere at the in New York City, the bottom line. or No, I can't remember one of the places. Yeah, it's in the book. I don't remember what club it was. But then he saw us, and then we um, we kind of hooked up and stuff. And then he said he wanted to do a song, you know, write a song and produce it and all this shit. It happened when I was going to quit the band. It was like I hated the band. I thought we sucked ass, which we did. And um, Rick was kind of like, was it, he was in and he wasn't, you know, he was kind of, he was there. And th at the time, Ori had just left and this guy, Walt O'Brien, a great guy, another good friend of mine still. So is Rick, by the way. Um, he, he joined the band, but he was still the new guy in the band. And, you know, he, he didn't want to step on Rick's feet and all this kind of shit, all this stupid stuff's going on. And Doug was kind of, he was fencing, you know, he was like, he couldn't keep up sometimes. And anyways, to get off the subject like i was i was figuring well we started recording this record and i was going to quit and then Didi came along and he said hey i got the song blah 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 so we go okay i go you know what i'll just give it a chance i'll just do one more thing and who knows maybe i'll make some money i never made money before but maybe it will happen you know but i doubt it it didn't happen but anyways 
course. <laughs> it, it didn't didn't make me any money, but um, it kept the band dragging on longer than I wanted it. But uh, so, anyways, Dee was going to come up. So it's the middle of winter. It's snowing out, of course, in Rochester. And it's December, and then um, Dee's going to come up, and he's not taking drugs anymore. Of course, right? That's what they all say. And uh, he's kicked heroin. You know, I don't do that no more. I don't do that heroin shit no more. I'm all done with it. Okay, good. And so I didn't believe it. And um, anyways, Dee Dee comes up. He's in the studio. And he, <laughs> we picked him up at the airport. And uh, it's snowing out. Oh, it's snowing here again. Oh, it's, you know, like he's just kind of, he talks like that, you know. And uh, so anyways, we're in the studio. And like the whole time, you know, he goes, here's how the song goes. And we had a tape, you know. He sent us a tape of him singing it. And he's singing it like, uh, well, I won't get into that part yet because it's the part that was annoying and pissed me off and stuff. And so, anyways, he's um, he, we set up the song, and the guys are playing this dan 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 dan. That stupid song is fucking stupid. I hate the song, and it's these three chords I don't like, and sounds like the same old shit. So he's doing it. You know, the guys are playing their part. Dan, I go, and so Dee's sitting there, and Armin was in the studio with us, and um, so Armin's there, and so Dee's like, yeah, oh, we played with Black Sabbath once, and they fucking threw bottles at me. And he's telling these war stories, right? And they were great. It was funny. And then I'm taking up karate and the cops were practicing karate with me and all this stupid shit. And I'm going, hey, um, Didi, um, these guys, what do, they, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, it sounds good. Uh, then so he's going on and on. he's telling war stories and going on and on. And so then he's finally like, you know, okay, Didi, what do you think of the song? And he's like, well, let's hear it back. And so then we're playing it back. Then he wanted to get... I don't, I don't. I can't talk about drugs and stuff, so I won't get into that. I'll get away from that. But let's just say, you know, he was. I don't know, he wasn't doing heroin, but he was needing other shit, and it was like annoying. And so then all of a sudden, he's like, decides to be a producer, and he wants to produce while I'm singing, of course, you know. And then the song's done, except for me. Okay, it's your turn. Okay, you know. <laughs> well, what kind of voice do you want me to do? Oh, I don't know. Just sing. It's okay. You want Mick Jagger, Van Morrison? Who do you want me to sound like? Whatever. Just sing. So then I just sing my voice, whatever it was. And no, no, turn off the tapes. And so then I start, okay, what do you want me to do? Try something else. So then I do, like, okay, Dylan. So I'm doing, hey, hey, you know, fucking Dylan's. No, that's not good. And then um, this went on and on. And I, so, you know, it's like an hour and a half went by. I go, why don't you fucking do it? Because I, I know what you want. I don't care about this shit anymore. And so he goes, well, you sing it like Marlena Dietrich. I go, Marlena Dietrich? I don't know how to fucking sing like, you know, <laughs> I'm fucking supposed to do that. And then he gets up to the mic and he's like, hey, 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 baby doll. I'm going, you want me to do that really seriously? Goes, yeah, try it. And so then I did this stupid voice and it sounded like Bullwinkle from Rocky and Bullwinkle. And yeah, that's it. <laughs> and so... So I did a Bullwinkle voice on that fucking song I hate. And so then anyways, that, that the whole thing revolved around him you know, trying to make me do this stupid voice for like hours after the other guys did the song in five minutes, you know, and it was like really annoying. But then I, I don't want to say that because he was a nice guy, but not there. And I used to think to myself, how do these guys make records, you know, like how do the Ramones make a record? How does it, this guy's himself and he's in here for like five hours working on this shitty song should take three minutes to make, you know? Yeah. But it, I mean, look at, listen to that record. It sucks. You know, that song, it's too horrible. <laughs> we are, at this point, we will not play baby doll by the Chesterfield Kings. <laughs> 
no, I mean, I thought the song was crap, but you know, I, I went along with it because I figured I'm a good sport. I'll go along with anything, you know, I, for a while I did. And, and then after a while, when your integrity starts going away, then you stop doing things, which is why eventually I had to get out of it. But, you know, but anyways, well, you know, you were showing respect to Didi, you know, for what he had accomplished up to that point, you know, with the Ramones. But yeah, maybe the respect was misplaced. I'm happy I did it. I'm glad I did it. And I, I do. I love the guy. He was a nice person. He's a real nice guy. And then he, another funny thing, he wanted us to do a rap song. <laughs> <laughs> and the other guys wouldn't do it. Right. Like Walt's going, I ain't doing a fucking rap song, you know, and all this stuff. And so then he goes, hey. Hey, uh, why don't you and Andy do a rap song? I go, okay, Andy, you want to do a rap? Go, yeah, let's just do it for a laugh. So, so we did this stupid thing. It was called, um, I can't remember, the Kings of Rock and Roll or some stupid shit, some pretentious, like, dumb title. And he's this when he was D.D. King, the rap guy, you know, and he had this funky man video where he's walking around the streets and pretending he's a rap guy, you know? It's real stupid. <laughs> it was terrible. And so, so we, we recorded this dumb thing. It was like so stupid. And we sent it to him. He goes, I love it. This is great. I'm going to get this put out on Run DMC's label. And I go, I hope he doesn't do this. And fortunately, he never did. But um, I'm sure if, if he did, we probably would have gotten big with it and made money, you know, probably from some piece of crap that we did as a laugh, you know? Yeah, you'd be known as this white rapper now. Yeah. <laughs> No, I don't think it would have gotten that far. <laughs> it was terrible, but it was funny. Anyways. We'll be right back. Let's talk briefly about, you know, I think one of the, you know, you did a lot of albums. One of the later albums, I guess you could say later you know, uh, albums that I really like is uh, the Let's Go Get Stoned album. Whereas really like, uh, you know, when that came out, I was like, man, this is like the, the album I wish the Rolling Stones were making these days. You know, this was 1994. Um, and uh, I really like, uh, I was just revisiting it yesterday and I really uh, love the song Long Ago, Far Away. Maybe just tell us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, I love that record and I love that band, the guys in the band. And, you know, Rocco, like I said, he's a hillbilly and a dope and stuff, but he was a good guy. But he was like a, I don't know, he weighed about 90 pounds and he was always like, yeah, man. And, but he was funny, but he was, he was annoying, but he was this great guitar player. And he, you know, he's strictly from the sticks and, uh, oh yeah, I don't want to get into that. But anyways, he could play like Mick Taylor. And I mean, he was phenomenal. I mean, he was just a great slide player. And, um, anyways, long ago, far away. Um, that whole thing, it didn't start out as a stones thing. We were just supposed to be doing this record. Then it started getting stones ish. And then, uh, and it wasn't like a tribute album or anything, but it just ended up, people thought that, but I don't care because I like it. I like the way it came out. And uh, that song, it was like, I got it. I actually ripped off Dylan, a song called Long Go Far Away by Dylan. It's actually, I ripped it off big time. And um, it's actually called Long Go Far Away. And it sounds like the same thing. It really is. I just stole it. <laughs> and it was on a bootleg, so I figured nobody would give a shit. And so, so a lot of people still don't know what the song is by Dylan. So um I guess it doesn't matter. I don't care. It's a long time ago anyways, if, somebody, if I did steal it. and um, But I didn't rip off the lyrics, um, except for the long ago, far away part. And um, the lyrics I, I got from the, I don't know, me and Carol were going up to Toronto or something for the weekend. And uh, I was writing the song in the car, you know, because it's a three-hour drive up there and all this, a three-hour tour. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, <laughs> so anyways, we're in the biggest bookstore called, it was Kohl's and we used to love going in there and it's, and, and they'd have all these books for like a, you know, a dollar and you get all these great things. And I found this one called Hitler's henchman and, um, I'm going, wow, this is some great lyrics. And so I got the book for a dollar and, uh, I got a lot of the ideas for that song in there. And I just wow. kind of crossed the Dylan song with that stuff. And then I kind of ripped off. No, I didn't kind of rip off. I ripped off Sympathy for the Devil. Everybody obviously thought that's what it was. But it's basically Dylan and the music's kind of Sympathy for the Devil. Well, it, not kind of. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Maybe that's why I like it so much. <laughs> love Dylan. Love Sympathy for the Devil. Yeah, it works for me. <laughs> no, but you know, you put your you put your own thing in. I mean, and, and the band, you know, the Chesterfield Kings have always been a very Rolling Stones like band. So you, just you really kind of crystallized it on this album into a really sharply focused, uh, you know, Stones sounding album. Not almost every track, but it was great. It's great stuff. I do love that record still. <laughs> that one stands up, you know. Um, so you broke up the Chesterfield Kings in 2011. You know, you, you, you said you, you just couldn't do it anymore. You know, tell me, you know, what, what were you thinking? You know, what, why did you not want to do that anymore? Um, well, I think we were around too long. Like, you know, I like when an old person gets too old. Like my father, when he died, he said, I've been around too long. And it's like, yep, all your friends are gone everything's gone you know and it was kind of like the band i was like well everybody used to like us thanks for fucking morons we've been around too long and i think that we kept changing too much and i wasn't on the same page with some people and and we weren't really a band and then i think the last thing would happen was in 2009 it was the last show we did and i didn't want to do it and somebody in the band wanted to do it anyways i won't get into that so we did this this lame show and we were fucking horrible and then we did this we had this new idea to do an acoustic you know, thing. It was a real trendy thing. All these fucking Aerosmiths doing it and the Stones, they do an acoustic thing. So we had this big, brilliant idea to do this acoustic thing in the middle of the set. And it was like so horrible. And we did Dead Flowers and I can't listen to that song ever again in my whole life, you know, because it was so pathetic. And uh, <laughs> sort of playing, it's wintertime, it's freezing outside, and nobody's there because at Christmas parties, like, there's like a half empty place and they go, we suck, you know, I'm done with this shit, you know. And so anyways, I wasn't quite done with it yet. And so we were still hanging on because we had debts and this and that. And we still had this rental place that we're paying to do nothing in. And then um, 2011 comes along. And I, I just got out of playing in a band. I don't want to fucking do this no more. It's just boring. We suck. I, I go on stage and I do the same stupid shit that I did for 100 years. You know, like I, I, if you read the book, I'm playing the part of an actor playing a has-been singer in a shit band. And that's basically what I was doing. You know, I'm just coming out. Okay, I'm going to be the actor in a TV show in my mind, you know, because I watch a lot of TV stuff. So I'm on a TV show and doing this crap. And then uh, the drummer, Mike, wanted to play. He goes, can we just practice? It's been two years. And so, okay. Then nobody <laughs> nobody wanted to practice. Well, I'm doing it this night, and nobody could get together. So, and, you know, then time's going on. And I just go, you know what? The, the, we can't, can't get anything going. And then all of a sudden, somebody booked this 
senseless show. That was kept happening. People, somebody was booking shows. I won't get into that. At these shitty things in Rochester. I'm like, fuck, we played some thing called the Lilac Festival. And it's like where all these squares come with their kids and they got cotton candy and balloons and all this garbage. And, you know, <laughs> and, oh, it's the, the Lilac Festival. You know, I mean, a lot of respectable people play it. So I can't, I don't want to say that because a lot of respectable, you know, John, Joan Osborne, and, and they've had respectable, great artists play at it. But it wasn't the kind of thing that we were, you know, we're like the, supposed to be the Stooges band, this thing, you know, whatever it is. I don't know. And I didn't want to play a bunch of, you know, you know, people's kids and shit and all that stuff. It's not what I wanted to do. You, you know, you go up and you say words like fucking shit. And be like, oh, you can't say that. You know, there's children out there. It's like, okay, well, why am I doing this stuff? So anyways, I busted up a bunch of chairs and did all this outrageous shit. And so anyways, we're doing all these lame shows. I'm done with it. You know, I'm like, okay, I'll just wait for the right time. Then all of a sudden my wife's going, you know, Carol comes home. She goes, oh, one of my friends at work said you're playing at this thing called Party in the Park. I go, Party in What the fuck is that? And it's like this lame thing, some tent downtown where people, a bunch of rednecks drink beer and shit. And um, they're going, oh, you're opening for the Romantics. I'm going, what the fuck? And we didn't play. In, you know, it's like, okay, we didn't play in two years. Two years went by. We didn't practice in two years. I go, who fucking stupid enough to book this crap, you know? And so then I find out and I go, you know what? I'm done with this shit. And I send everybody an email going, goodbye. I'm done. Adios. And then it was just like, that was kind of like the final straw. But in the meantime, I was just becoming um, a shadow of what I was, you know, I was like, it wasn't inspiring. The music sucked. We did the same set for like 10 years. And you know, I love Paul Morbido. He's a great guy and we're still friends. We still do stuff together. He was a guitar player. Love the guy. He's one of my friends, great friend. And, um, that was the end of it, you know? And I, I just, I was, it was like a, I don't know, it was almost like, uh, you know, you go to hell and you get out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you felt you were just going through the motions after a while. So, you know, it wasn't real anymore. Yeah, I mean, there was still points. Like in 2009, we played with Roy Loney. I loved playing with Roy over in Spain, and it was great. And there was highlights and stuff. And there were still moments that, you know, and then stuff that little Steven did for us that he did some, all that great stuff that we did in those days. He did it. I didn't do it. We weren't, we didn't earn it. He gave it to us. You know what I mean? We got on The Sopranos because he put us on there. We got on to Conan O'Brien because he did it. And we got on to Jimmy Kimmel's show because Stephen used his time to go out there and do it. If he didn't go with us, we wouldn't have been on them shows. He he set it all up. So I am eternally grateful to him for that, you know. But he did all he could to help us. And we couldn't help ourselves, which was half our problem. You know, we expected him to do everything in the end. And it's like, you can only help yourself you know and we couldn't we weren't smart enough or young enough or good enough anymore you know right yeah so how long after that ended you know how long was it before you started making music again because of course now you're making now you're you know greg stackhouse prevost you're making your own music solo but there was a little time there where you did nothing right yeah, I got, I hated music. I didn't even listen to records or nothing. I, it was funny that I got so burned out on it and I never wanted to play music again. I said, I'm just going to play golf. And I started playing golf again. And, um, and then some guy I saw in the green was telling me, start playing guitar in the wintertime because you can't play golf here. And I go, oh, I'll start doing that. You know, and then I started doing that and then I got into all that shit. And um, I started doing like open tunings and um, playing with finger picks and all this stuff. And then I recorded a bunch of like, primitive stuff and i sent it to enric bosser of um Peniman records and because he was my friend from 
like way back we met in Spain in the eighties and nineties or Enric, um, he just goes, Hey, this is really good. Uh, he wanted to put out as a 45. And so I did that Mr. Charlie, um, and, um, Rolling Stone blues, um, Reverend Wilkins song there. And, uh, and then he just said, Oh, I can hear, I can imagine this with guitar and bass and blah, blah, blah. And then it just sort of evolved. And then I hooked up with my friend, Zach, who was a drummer and he, played with our old band, the Chesterfield Kings. He played rhythm guitar in the last two years of the band. And then, um, then I met Alex, who was a, you know, he's a, you know, instrumental genius kid. And, uh, I don't know, we just hooked up and, and everything just started to fall together. And I was like, wow, I'm doing stuff that I, I'm really liking this again, you know? And then it just kind of opened the door up for me again. And I love music again. And I play records all the time and stuff for a while. I didn't do anything. I couldn't listen to music. It just, I don't know if that happened to you, Mike, ever, but. Yeah, no, I've, I've gone through periods like that, yeah. But um, let's, yeah, so you've done three albums. Um, maybe we can talk about like a song off of each album and we can play a little excerpt for the people okay. at home. Um, Mississippi Murder was the first one. That was 2012, I think. And I really, uh, for me, the f best song on that album, Hard Time Killing Floor Blues. Oh yeah, I really like how that came out. The um, Skip James song. I love his really haunting kind of, his original is just so, I don't know, it's just really like kind of dangerous the way it sounds. It's so laid back and, and um, you know, I just love that record, you know? And actually, you know, it's funny. I, I think that song, I was trying to sound like Midnight Rambler on it. I don't know. I was playing like this Keith Richards kind of thing on the guitar and, you know, at, on that album, I was still consciously, I didn't want to sound like the Stones. I was trying to get away from that because I had been ripping him off so many years. And it's like, oh, he's doing the fucking Rolling Stones again, you know, the same old shit. So I didn't want to do that. So unfortunately, there's a Stones song on there anyways, it, <laughs> as it happened. <laughs> but um, yeah, I was kind of into that whole Keith Richards, Midnight Rambler lunch sound, you know, and I, and I wanted to be kind of cryptic. And I don't know, it just kind of fell together. And then that record was just kind of, Part of it was recorded in my living room, the the one song, because but it got too loud because when Zach's playing the drums, all the pictures and stuff on the walls were falling off, and knickknacks were hitting the floor. <laughs> we did it at three in the morning, and like everybody in the street, the lights went on. It was like, oh shit, you know. <laughs> Carol was working overnight at the hospital, and it's like, oh, let's record between you know one o'clock in the morning and five in the morning, and it's like, yeah, what a good idea. Until we started doing it. And then, then all of a sudden, lights on the street are going on. Like, oh shit! So one song got recorded in the living room. The rest of it we did in Alex's parents' hallway, which was like, you know, it had a floor in it, and there was no pictures in the room. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, the, your second uh, Stackhouse album is uh, uh, Universal Vagrant. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Moaning the Blues. Tell me about Moaning the Blues. Um, that was actually like, you know, the Alan Shaw, have you heard the original version of it? Um, yeah, the, yeah. And it's like really like one of them cryptic things. And I'm like, I tried to do it. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I, I can't be as convincing as this in this format, you know? So 
I figured I'd just electrify it. And that, that's what I started doing with some of the stuff that was too good to be, I don't know, you try to do like a Muddy Waters song and, and you try to copy it. And it's like, well, you're never going to be as good as Muddy Waters and why bother? You know, it's, who wants to listen to your crappy version, you know? So then you kind of have to make it your own song, which is what I started doing with songs after I dumped the band, which I was, back when I was in the band, I think the problem I had was we would copy things and we'd carbon copy it. And it's like, well, why bother doing this? Because it yeah. sounds, go listen to whoever you're trying to steal, you know? Yeah, a lot of bands have that problem, you know. And, and I think that's why your solo stuff is so great because, uh, you know, it's really 100% you. Rather than do a song and copy it, I just try to do my own version of it, where I, if I can handle it. And then um, I try songs, and if they don't work, then I move on. You know, I'll just say, like, like, Carol wanted me to do an MC5 song. And that fucking doesn't work for me. You know, I can't sing like Rob Tyner. I can't do this. She wanted me to do Looking at You the way that A squared one was. Yeah. And, you know, that original one. And I, I, <laughs> the schizophonics can do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> they sound just like that. But yeah. uh, I can't sing like Rob Tyner. And I said, well, if I said, did this, it's going to sound like a pathetic version of an MC5 song. So I, I, it's trial and error. I just try a song that works after a while. So that one just kind of, I don't know, I electrified it. And um, uh, I had this guy, um, Keenan, playing piano on it. He had this great kind of Ramsey Lewis kind of thing on it. You know, it's like, I don't know, it just added a, a touch to it that um, gave it a different feel, you know. And uh, I think I was playing, I played all the guitars. On these records, the first record, I played all the guitars. And then that one, I played all the guitars. I, I think Alex plays, on a, he, he alternates, like a, does a counterpoint with me on a couple things. Is there a harmonica on that? I think there is, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's a good one. So uh, your uh, most recent album, um, which I think is uh, the best one you've done yet, is called Songs for These Times, because uh, you really mix things up on this album, and a uh, mixture of covers and originals. Uh, the opening song, I, I really love that uh, song, Free as the Wind. You know, well, tell me about that. You know, it's hard to remember how I came up with it. It was the la one of the last things I came up with for the album, because I needed another, I wanted to have another original song on it, and it just kind of fell together, you know, it was just playing and then um i don't know i, I yeah i think he's, in the book he said it was about a girl that you knew yeah and it just kind of uh just kind of happened you know and uh, actually no it's about a guy i knew and um he never could get his feet on the ground you know he never could get rooted and stuff and he would just like he'd do things like he kind of most guys would be like gee i wish i could just go and do the drift around and go here and do that and do this and but then he never could get, he never got married or nothing or found anybody to be with or any of that kind of stuff. So, but then he did eventually. So it had a happy story. But I, I wrote about the part where he's fucked up. Right, right. Yeah, I think we all know people like that over the years for sure. Too many. <laughs> <laughs> Too many. So uh, yeah, I mean, we're kind of in the in the last uh, leg here. Um, uh, so I've been trying to think of the best way to wrap this up. But you know, I mean, I guess obviously you could talk about you know what are you doing now? Um, you, you're working on any new records? You got any plans to play live or? you know, tour or anything like that? Um, actually, I'm starting a new record, like, soon. Um, it's going to be, like, the last one, but not... I don't want to say it's going to be, like, the last one, but it's going to be the same kind of feel. Because I, I, I don't like playing electric anymore. Or, I mean, I don't want to say that. I just don't like playing electric now, you know? Because uh, this was supposed to be a half electric, half acoustic. The last one was supposed to be that, but then I liked the way it sounded without electricity, so... But this one, I think I just want to have, keep even more simple with just um, like that first Dylan kind of album. I don't want to compare it to Dylan because then people get the idea that I'm trying to sound like that. 
<laughs> it's true. <laughs> Many have tried. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that first album, the way it sounds, and the first Donovan album where he's playing an acoustic and he's got a harmonica and and then there's a bass on some songs and, and I'm kind of going for that kind of a feel on this next thing. And yeah, and it's going to be more or less the same kind of um, some originals and, and a lot of songs that I love doing or playing because I, I don't, I mean, people say, well, you could write all originals. Like, yeah, I don't really want to, I don't, I don't think it's a good idea. I, I'm happier doing things that I, I really like and um, doing them my way, you know, without, and I can't write a song as good as, um, you know, Snowblind Friend. I mean, I just love that song. You know, it's like, you can't write a song better than that, you know, really. I mean, maybe you can. I don't know. Maybe somebody can. I can't. But uh, rather than do a song that's it's a good song, I'd rather do a song like that that I love doing and it comes out, it's really depressingly good, you know? Yeah, and I think having those songs are kind of markers for people that if they're maybe not familiar with you, but they see the record in the store or whatever or online or whatever, they see you know, hey, he's doing Splash One, he's doing Codine, Snowblind Friend. Okay, I kind of have an idea where this guy's coming from, you know, where he, you know, what his roots are. So it kind of, those are kind of markers as to how the whole album sounds and feels, you know. So yeah, I, I understand that thinking. That's cool. Thank, yeah, you got it. Thanks, Mike. It's, uh, yeah, something like that. I don't know. I'm just, just like our old band. We were never good enough. I mean, I'm not no good songwriter or nothing, you know. It's like, adequate for what i have to do but like um i don't know i'd rather do like a Holland wolf song you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well you know I, th I think you write you're a really good songwriter but you know you're not all pumped up and self-righteous about how great your own songs are you know that's what i it's kind of a turn off to me sometimes with with these uh usually guys who are just so precious about their songwriting like it's some kind of uh you know handed down from heaven kind of gift that they have, you know, it's yeah, like, I, I don't, I think I don't so. want even want to hear it by the time I hear them talking like that. You know, some people are too, they get too serious about what they do. I mean, not that I'm not serious when I'm doing stuff, but like, you got to take it with like, well, I don't know. I just think yeah. what I did, what I'm doing is just something I do. I don't, I'm not good at it, but I mean, I don't know what it is. It's just something that happens, you know? <laughs> uh, you know, if you, if you have to tell people you're serious, it probably means you know you you've got some problem with it. You know, if you are serious, you don't you don't have to tell them. It's like, you know, people who are cool are not the ones that are saying they're cool. You know, <laughs> exactly. It's like it's like it's not the whole garage thing. People saying, "Well, we're garage rock." It's like, really, what the fuck's that? You know, I mean, that used to be something that was descriptive, but now it's just like, you know, garage pop and psychedelic all this crap. It's like, come on, really? It's just become a word now, like any band with guitars is like garage, you know, it, it used to be, you know, everybody, they used to use the word punk, you know, for everything after punk was big, you know, suddenly mm -hmm. everything was punk, you know, now like everything's garage, you know, it's, it, the word kind of lost its meaning. Then it became sort of garage rock. I mean, we never, it was never the garage rock revival, you know, it, it was, you know, it was 60s punk or 60s garage or garage. It wasn't garage rock. I think we were just doing our thing back then, you know, whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just yeah, happened, it you know? Well, yeah, we weren't trying to be, well, I'm sure a lot of bands were trying to be conformed to a genre, you know, that wasn't really what I was having in mind. But, and you, I know you weren't, you're just doing what you liked, you know, doing the music that you believed in. That's it. Yeah. Some people like me, myself were around too long, you know? 
<laughs> well, you know, that's a hard thing. I mean, uh, you know, what what else you're going to do? You know, you have to <laughs> you have to keep playing, you know, it, you know, you've you know, there's times where I've stopped and then you're like, what am I going to do now? You know, you want to go back. You can't you can't stay away, you know. It's like being a career criminal or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think part of it what in my I think my problem with the band was I won't go back into this stuff cuz I I mean basically the, this book it's coming out. It's going to like just that's the end of the band. I don't want to after that it's like I ain't talking about this band anymore. It's fucking done. People get the idea, that, "Oh, you like the band." No, I didn't. It's something I did. It's like, you know, you stepping dog shit you don't want to remember it you know it's just something that happened and <laughs> you know it's just like a, something that happened it's like back then it's like i wanted to get out so many times because it was lame or whatever but i couldn't because i had commitments or debts to be paid and and you know i was tied into something that you know you want you had to keep going for something a reason it wasn't just because you like playing the music it was something that you had to stay together or you had to come out of take money out of your mortgage to pay for debts and I didn't want to do that. So we had to drag the band out for many years and then some things would make it good again and it didn't last. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's usually enough, you know, moments on stage or whatever that makes anything worthwhile, you know, and that's probably why some bands continue way longer than they should. You know, I mean, we see it everywhere, mm -hmm. you know, in most cases, the band's, you know, first album, it's first two or three albums are their best, you know, in, in almost all cases, you know, totally, totally exactly. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it, kids. That's the message. Give up. <laughs> that's, that's what, that's the essence of rock and roll. Knowing to quit while you're ahead and nobody ever does. Including me, probably. No, I'm not saying that, you know, but uh, <laughs> I'm still well, see, enjoying it, too. See, what you have going is a whole different trip because you got, you know, you're, you're involved with something that's actually, it's it's solid, you know, and you're doing something that's valid and it works and you got, you're not, nobody has hangups, you know. I mean, what happened to, with me was like there was people that were hung up and shit and it was just like, you know, fuck this attitude stuff and chest pounding and, I don't know, people like, I didn't like being represented by other people that, you know, say things and do things and you don't know what's going on. And then somebody comes up and tells you you're a fucking moron because you're associated with somebody, you know? Yeah. Right. And, yeah. And it happened to me so many times, you know, it's like, God, what's going on? And some person that was my friend hated my guts for years. And I find out years later, it's because this happened and I didn't know it. Well, you know, I won't get into all that crap. Yeah. No, I, I know. Yeah. You, if you find the right group of people, you know, which is what I have in the loons, you know, and then you all know, you know, what we're all on the same page and all pulling in the same direction. Exactly. But that's so rare to have. And so, and you end up carrying around people like baggage sometimes, you know, and I've been in bands like that, you know, and there just gets to be too much baggage between you all. <laughs> yeah. You know, it poisons everything and everything gets compromised, you know. Plus, uh, you in San Diego, I mean, it's really happening there. And it's like, I don't know. Here in Rochester, there's like this, this, I don't know, all that stuff, that whole thing just disappeared, you know? And when in San Diego, it's like, there's this magnetism, you know, that, that I can feel from here. I mean, I, I know it, you know? Yeah. I mean, maybe it appears that way more from a distance than when you're right here, but yeah, no, that there, there is something special about here and, and, uh, you know, it flares up and dies down over the years. Right now, it's it's doing pretty good. Yeah, it's because you 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 make it happen. You're like the catalyst of the that whole thing. And plus, ugly things is like universal. I mean, people are like totally 
getting into it, you know? Well, you know, I keep, <laughs> I don't get, I don't ever stop, you know? <laughs> so it keeps, you know, ugly things keeps rolling along. And, and, and part of my reason that I do it, and now I'm talking about myself again, uh, part of the reason I'm doing it, it's always been to sort of, you know, educate people as to what the cool stuff is in the hopes that maybe it'll help the music scene as a whole, you know, there'd be more good bands out there, you know? And every now and then it, I'm proven to be right where a band comes up like the Grigory, um, you know, a few years ago, and they were, you know, they were all ugly things readers, and and they were turned on to the pretty things and yardbirds and all that kind of stuff. And ugly things was part of why they started playing that kind of music, and they turned out to be a great band, you know. And that's yeah, one of the reasons to have this magazine is just to kind of keep the cool music alive, you know. It definitely is, you know. Yeah, I mean, I know I, I didn't ask you about, you know, I thought, should I get into the Stones book? But then that's like almost like it could be a whole episode in itself. You know what I mean? Oh, I know. You could go on and on, drag it out. You know? Yeah, I kind of wanted to do the, the you know, I kind of want to get people interested in, you know, your what's in the book, you know, and your story. Thanks for doing the interview. I mean, I've, I've, I'm honored, really. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. We'll be in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Take care. See ya. Yellow is the color of my true love's hair in the morning when we rise in the morning when we rise well that's the time say that's the time I love the best The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and narrated by Mike Stacks that's me you can order the latest issue of Ugly Things magazine at uglythings.com that's ugly-things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Issue number 61 will be coming out at the end of November. That's 2022. Please support us on Patreon, where all contributions are deeply appreciated, and help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, and psychedelic music. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters, Rob Brannigan, Chip Lyon, and Ray Brandis. Thank you, all of you, for your support, and thank you for listening. Of the sky, high in the morning, when we rise, in the morning, when we rise, well, that's the time, say that's the time, I love the best. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at fantasy points. Fantasypoints.com code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.